Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're actually just at the last verse of Ephesians 4, although I'll read a few verses before it for context, and then into the first two verses of chapter 5. Now, remember when the letter was first written that it wouldn't have had chapters and verses. It would just be one long scroll, most likely, and whoever brought it to Ephesus um, would then gather the the believers together, could have been in a synagogue or a meeting place, could have traveled to the different homes and read it, but it would have been read in one sitting the first time so everybody could hear it. They wouldn't have copies to go back to and refer to. There'd usually be one copy, and then they would make copies of those copies so that more people could have them, and they were sent to other churches, not just Ephesus, and and so on. The reason why I mention that is that sometimes we lose the effect of the whole message when we take small sections at a time working through the passages in this expository fashion. Um, If you think about it, those first opening chapters, the first half of the letter, was all a buildup for what we are now studying. If you just picked up chapter 4 and 5, you would see all sorts of commands and precepts. One might say this is a book of morals, but the reality is, is this comes as the response or the outflow of everything that's been declared in the first three chapters of Ephesians. So anytime you get to a section in Scripture, even if it's the Ten Commandments, it's all resting in God's favor to His people in redemption through the Messiah. The Old Testament looking ahead to the finished work, we looking back to the finished work of our Messiah, who has made us alive together with God. Uh, We are now his children. We are new creatures. We are a new community. We are living stones in his holy temple. All of this is done by God. In the first three chapters of, of Ephesians, it's a display. It's a celebration of God's sovereign grace in Christ, giving us this salvation. So when you get to chapter four, you're just ready to live out all that God has done inwardly. You want to see outwardly these things put to application. So it's important to be rooted in God's sovereign grace and then come to these things God tells us to do now is new creatures. And you remember, one of the things we've been thinking of in a metaphor is taking off the old clothes that associates with us as dead sinners and put on the new clothes that manifest who we really are as living spiritual beings now in Christ. With that, as a bit of a preface, we come to the end of chapter 4 where we've gone through a a litany of things we should put off and things we should put on. We're still in that, but then it starts to transfer to a new metaphor, going from clothing that's put off and then put on to how we walk, our life, our actions, the way we conduct ourselves, our walk. That will be the new metaphor that we see the apostle now weave in. So hear God's word. I'll start at verse 29 of chapter 4, but our main focus will be verse 32 and then verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, your word is a treasure of wisdom and direction. We know it is true when we read, yet we have such difficulty living according to its precepts. By the ministry of your Holy Spirit, please give us understanding about what this passage says and the ability to obey these commands. Lord, please help us to put away our self-focus, our, self, our selfishness, and consider your will for a unified, grace-filled, loving church family. You have shown us grace, and you have shown us love through Christ. May we extend the same to our brothers and sisters. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For most of chapter 4, we've been considering how to live out this new identity, again, by taking off the old clothes and putting on the new clothes. Now there is a metaphor I want to pick up on because it's the apostle's metaphor. He actually started it in chapter 4, the very beginning, but now he uses the same term or the same metaphor, the same phrase, multiple times in the rest of chapter 5. So over the course of three sermons, we'll see three different ways he uses this metaphor. And the metaphor is walking, comparing the Christian life, the life you live, with walking, how you go about your life. This is what it means to walk, the Christian walk as we might call it. There's a class that's taught at the seminary I teach at, and it's just simply called the Christian walk. It's meant to help students understand how to integrate what Christianity teaches, what biblical Christianity teaches in everyday life so that every aspect of our life is seen through the lens of Christ. And we analyze our circumstances, we consider our actions, how we relate with each other through the lens of Christ. This is our Christian walk. And Paul uses the term walk or walking, the activity of walking, to describe our actions and how we act and uses descriptive terms for them. And he really gives three now through the rest of chapter 5. Let me take you through this metaphor, and you can just listen to this and recall. In Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. The calling is called unto himself through Christ. It's that huge buildup in the first three chapters of our becoming sons and daughters of God through Christ. That's your calling. Uh, you've been called and you are in him, and now walk in a manner worthy of that calling. So that's the first time he mentions it at the very beginning of chapter 4. Then in the middle of chapter 4, he says it again in the midst of all the, the taking off the old and putting on the new. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Hopefully remember, the Gentiles uh, are descriptive of people who don't believe in God, do not believe in Christ. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. But you're not darkened in your understanding any longer in Christ. So don't walk like you are darkened. Walk as you are, one who has received light now from God, revelation from God. Now, still using the walking metaphor, we come to the second verse of chapter 5, what, the verse I read. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, the reason why I put verse 
32 together with 1 and 2 is because it's the whole, it's the grace that we show each other in forgiveness and the love that we show each other uh, in our affection towards one another that works itself out in action. That's all wrapped up in the work of Christ, his sacrifice. We see it in these verses. We'll see it more. But that's a call to walk in grace and love. But then Paul uses the term again in the eighth verse of chapter 5 where he says, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are, you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So walk in grace and love. That's what we're studying today. And then next week, Lord willing, the next passage is to walk as children of light, who are enlightened, who have clarity about how to interpret things because of the light God's given us. So walk in grace and love today. Walk in light will be next sermon's subject. But there's one more walk in this passage, chapter 5. In verse 15 of chapter 5, look carefully, Paul says, then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So the third walk is one of wisdom. So walk in grace and love, walk in light, and walk wisely or in wisdom. We'll see all of these on display in chapter 5, but we begin today with just the first couple of verses. With our new identity in union with Christ, we are to walk according, accordingly in relationship with each other. Think in terms of your family, and then think in terms of your church family is the most immediate ways to apply what we're going to read, to live it out. And then our hope is, is as the community lives this out, we are able to have more footing to preach the message of the gospel, put it on display, the fruits of it, for more people to come and recognize and, re and, and realize the love that God has given us, which shows that Jesus is true. So walk in God's grace and love, walk in God's light, and walk in his wisdom. First, walk in God's grace with each other. Look at verse 32. Verse, or excuse me, verse 31. 31 starts with, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now, you know the world around us. There's no problem describing this today. Wouldn't you say that bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, these are, these are the watchwords that describe culture today, especially in this season. So there's no need for me to have to prove to you this is the way human beings act. We know it of ourselves, and we know the way it works in society. The problem is, is sometimes we carry this into our families, into our church family. And Paul knows this, and he's speaking to Christians honestly that those tendencies we have as sinful human beings, now that we're in Christ, we can put that off and put something new on. So now, don't walk that way looking for an argument, looking, always looking for a debate, always looking to be right, uh, to cause a stir everywhere, to even have shouting matches. That's what's described. That should not be true of us in our church family. And so he's encouraging us to walk in a way that's grace-filled, that's gracious. And he describes it using several terms. Be kind to one another, verse 32, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The substance of our ability to do these things is because of what God in Christ has done for us. But look what he's telling us to do now. To be kind to one another, tender-hearted, and forgiving one another. These three descriptions are a great, a great display of what grace towards each other is. Showing grace to one another. To show patience with one another. Kindness. First of all, kindness. What is this towards one another? Kindness 
is looking to serve others at their point of need, knowing we all have various kinds of needs. But practicing kindness is to look out for other people and see how we can help them with what they need. That's a kind heart to look for those who are suffering and struggling. You think of God's example. We're in our sin and misery, and God, out of the kindness, out of his loving kindness, he reaches to us with redemption in Christ to save us. How is someone hurting so that I might relieve their hurt is what kindness looks like. It prompts us to come alongside of others, even if it means getting in the gutter with somebody. It has to do with patience and gentleness, knowing that we are no better than anyone else and could be right where they are and they might need us. It could be something much simpler, just the way we interact with one another, always seeking someone else's best. Tenderheartedness simply means Our hearts are soft and able to empathize or feel what other people feel or try to or want to know what it is that somebody's going through. It goes hand in hand with kindness. When you serve others at their point of need in kindness, you'll start to see from their perspective. And then empathy, empathy comes next and it can help you feel their, it's not those theoretical points we make in our head. It's actually meeting people and seeing where they are and realizing what their situation is like. That's tenderheartedness towards one another, and it's all part of being gracious to each other. But what tips the scales in favor of this grace, uh, this grace motive that we are to have, or this grace action we should take, is this last phrase, to forgive one another. Verse 32, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Certainly, if we're kind and tenderhearted, we'll have a demeanor that is ready to Uh, see those things that are done as offenses oftentimes or could be offensive in general and have a forgiving spirit towards it, a patient spirit towards it, forgiving one another, looking to give forgiveness to others as God in Christ forgave you. Literally, it means acting in grace towards one another, forgiving one another. We go from being forgiven ourselves to being a forgiving person towards others. All of the new clothes we put on are because of Christ and what he does. Forgiving others is only possible when you understand how Christ has forgiven you. We follow our Father's example of grace towards us and forgiving us in Christ. It's easy to say, but it's not, it's not so easy to do. That's the challenge for sure. Practicing grace towards one another. And the basis for our ability to walk this way, we see in verse 32 and in verse 1. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And here's the basis. As God in Christ forgave you. The reason we can be gracious with one another is because God has shown us grace in Christ. That is the model. It's not the model of other people that you may have heard of that have shown forgiveness in the face of great offense. Those can be um, inspiring for sure. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't mention them, but... The motive for us in the church, the reason we are to be forgiving for one another is, number one, because God has been that forgiving to us in Christ. In fact, far more forgiving than any of us could muster for anyone else. The example we have is unattainable ultimately because we could never forgive. We've never been offended like God has been offended, and yet he forgives in Christ. So this is our benchmark for how we are gracious towards one another. God's grace to us, the basis for showing grace to others. Despite our offenses against him, despite our lack of care about God's heart in any manner apart from him touching us, despite our sinfulness, because of Christ, 
We are forgiven by God. And because we are forgiven by God, we can actually practice this with each other. Walking in grace toward others. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Think of how this might apply right now in your life. I'm sure that there's somebody, there's some people, some situation that you're, you're bitter towards or you're frustrated with or it's occupying your mind. It's making you tense right now thinking about it. I mean, you get some relief coming to church and thinking and singing and praying, but it's gnawing at you. I just challenge you to consider whether it might be a case where you can apply God's grace towards that person or that situation. Now, there are complex issues. I don't mean you just forget something that's been done against you, that's wronged you and hurt you and so forth. There are processes to work through those things. But at initial level, are you willing, on the basis of the grace that God's shown you in Christ, are you willing to show that to somebody else? I'm telling you that when that happens, you'll have a relief you'll have a certain release from it. I don't mean everything's solved, all complications over. I don't mean that. But it's a starting point when you truly use how you've been offended to pause and realize how God had been offended by your sin or my sin and how he in Christ, even though I did nothing to deserve it, saves me in Jesus. And that makes me so grateful to Christ. It's amazing grace. I want to sing it. Now, how can that be used to forgive somebody else? whoever it is in your mind right now that you're thinking of, that you can consider. It's crucial for us as believers to live this out. I think it's the number one way we manifest in our actions that we understand the gospel. We can say the gospel in words and, and describe it as a proposition like it is, as it's given by Christ, as it's given in Scripture, and we need to know that. But the way you can test yourself about how well you're grasping it is how well you're able to forgive others with graciousness and tenderheartedness and kindness. Uh, this is a great test for us as believers in how we're growing. It will still be a struggle. I'm not telling you to doubt your salvation. If you just have this case, you can't get over. I am saying that if you feel stirred over that case, that's an excellent sign that the Lord's working in you to make it consistent, the grace you've received and the grace you give to others. I think the best illustration I can give of this, I was trying to think of a story that I could tell you that would help, and I kept coming back to Jesus' story, which is a good place to go, because he gives an illustration about this. This issue of showing grace to one another is never-ending in our, in our personal lives, in our, our life in the church family, even probably out in your workplace. It's a constant issue because there's conflicts between people all the time, and people offend us, and we get upset with each other. And Peter knew this, and Peter was feeling pretty good about his situation close to Christ. I think I can say that fairly with other things he said. And so he would test Jesus every once in a while, knowing the law, knowing the ways the Jewish law built up further laws around the biblical law, and there was always something extra mile that they would go. And Peter was looking for even to go a little farther now that, you know, we're followers of Christ. And so he goes to Jesus and says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? as many as seven times. Now he's citing a legal number right then. And he'd be fine with Jesus saying, no, Peter, we should do it 10 times. I'm sure he's thinking, some, I can't say I'm sure, but I'm guessing he's thinking something like that. But then Jesus says something that startles him and it should resonate with all of us. Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, this is another way of saying, you're going to keep forgiving them, Peter. You have to be forgiving. And to make sure Peter gets it, he tells the story that sparks all of our justice, 
All of us can sense this a bit if we put ourselves in this, this position. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So a king has a vast domain, multiple servants. He, own, he owns a, an amount that's probably far greater than any of us can imagine in such a setup. And so he has to settle accounts with his servants, servants who owe him. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. That is a number that's really, it's, it's figurative for an infinite number. There's no way a person, especially a servant in this case, could ever come up with this amount of money. It's a drastic amount of money. Now, be warning, even if you heard the story, I tend to think through the lens of the king at first, like, boy, he's got a right to be ticked about this. But remember, Jesus isn't putting us in the place of the king. That's, we're not the king. We're the servant who's coming to the king with a debt we cannot pay. And so the servant comes owing 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master did the legal thing. He ordered him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. It's harsh, but that's the law. And that was understood. So the servant fell on his knees begging grace. Begging grace, meaning he didn't deserve it, but please give it to me anyways. He fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. There's no way he could pay everything. That's impossible. It's a pathetic scene. But out of mercy, out of kindness, out of pity, it says, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. His whole life returned unto him. He, now he, can, he has started over completely. What grace shown to him. That's all of us. We've been shown this. But then Jesus goes on with a story that I think helps bolster what the apostle then says. But when that same servant went out, the one who'd just been forgiven, all that, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That would be like 50 bucks, maybe a hundred bucks. He found someone who owed him a hundred bucks and seized him, began to choke him and said, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Doesn't it sound familiar? Only the, the offense or the amount owed was so much less. He pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But the servant responds, the one who had been shown all this grace, he refused and went to put him in prison until he should pay the debt. That's what we're like when we've received this grace. We say we've received this great grace from God. Maybe we underestimate how much grace we've received. Like the hymn we just sang, infinite grace. You can't calculate how much we have received. The story goes on as Jesus tells it. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And, you, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? So this is the challenge to us as believers, and I'm confident if you're a believer and you hear this, there's conviction that we all have about how we've been unforgiving. It's just too common a uh, human experience for me to be wrong on this. I'm sure that we have all experienced. I hear it constantly. The number one thing you hear pastorally is broken relationship and forgiveness needed. In my suggestion, my exhortation, on the basis of what Paul says, is to do inventory as a congregation about this with one another. And starting in your own homes, how are ways that we can manifest the fruit of our salvation, the forgiveness we've had in Christ, that we really believe? How can we manifest it with someone who's wronged us in our immediate 
in our immediate sphere of relationships. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, verse 1 serves as a transition into both points. It's, it, it supports what's just been said about living graciously towards one another, and it will dip into the point about loving one another. Look at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. As beloved children. We've been forgiven by God through Christ. That's his grace. We've been adopted as children of God through his grace, beloved children. Through Christ, that's more grace than adoption. Forgiving one another means acting in grace toward one another. This leads us to what comes next. We walk in God's grace and we walk, walk in God's love. These go hand in hand. That's why they're, uh, the subject of this full sermon is just grace. You can't separate them. Grace and love from God and to each other. It begins, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to, sacrifice to God. Whoa, if you just took out of its context the first few words of chapter, or verse one, be imitators of God. If you just took that out of context with none of what we just said, that would be a daunting thing. James Boyce says it's one of the most startling admonitions in the New Testament. Be imitators of God. Are you serious? Be imitators of God? William Barclay said the highest standard beyond which there is no other. Be imitators of God. McLaren said the sum of all duty. Be imitators of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the highest level of all in doctrine and practice. The ultimate ideal. Be imitators of God. It says, therefore, be imitators in light of what's come before, that God has reconciled us in Christ. He's done these things for us. Therefore, in that light, be imitators of God. And then it goes on to say, we should love as God loved. So it's not saying be like God in all his divine attributes, uh, in all the ways that we cannot imitate God. Simply put, these two immediate features of the new Christian life grace and love shown to us by God. Imitate those things that you have received from God. You can do this. You can because you're born again. You can because he gives us the Spirit's aid. You can act in grace and love towards one another and here more specifically, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. There's a key descriptor here that I hope helps encourage you to practice this love towards one another. Notice how we are described. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. This is so critical to understanding our motivation. We're bound often by our human relationships with our parents, and they're never, they're never obviously perfect. Some could be really painful. And so it's difficult sometimes to draw upon the doctrine of adoption and find comfort in it because of our own parenting or the parents we had, whatever the case may be. Some have been blessed and fortunate enough to have great parenting. But you have to disconnect your experience from that and recognize who your father is in Christ, God the Father. And he counts you as a beloved child. He gives you good things. He loves you. He supports you. He gives you stability. He provides for you. He sends people to help you. This is who you are as a beloved child. So a beloved child, a child who feels secure in their father, will be able to imitate in a way 
that someone who does not receive that would not even seek to look after the way their father acted. Now, I'm not suggesting at all that I'm that kind of a father to my children, but when they were young and didn't know any better, they thought so, for sure. And my son, AJ, when he was between two and three years old, he was in a, in a constant copy dad mode. And he would, uh, and I loved it. He was, uh, early on, you know, when you have a simpler life and this, it, you're just focusing in on trying to be a good parent right, up, right out of the gate. I'm not saying it wanes every additional child. I'm just saying that you have more energy, the first one. And so you're spending all this time, and they're following you everywhere. We had a small house, and literally room to room, he would follow me everywhere. He would imitate things I would do consistently. One time I went into this little bathroom we had off the kitchen, and I was shaving. I left, and I was eating at the table, and a few minutes later, AJ came out with his chubby cheeks, raw red. He had got my razor and shaved his peach fuzz off his face. It was terrible. It looked like sunburned cheeks. And he was so proud of himself because he did what Daddy did. And then a while later, I'd start doing the, mow, the lawn with a push mower. And when he could walk real good, he, well, not real good, but he could walk, he would get between me and the mower and put his hands up on the middle bar and help me mow. It, a lawn should have taken 15 minutes, would take an hour, but he was following his dad. Finally, we bought him a lawn mower that made noise, um, and it made, you know, it made a, a popping noise when it went along. And he followed me right behind me and mowed the lawn the whole time I mowed the lawn when he was not even three years old. He... He felt loved, and he was in that, that stage of life, that simple stage of life that just wanted to do what his father did. Similarly to us, and there are no flaws in our father, and he's given us nothing but his blessing, he's calling upon us as his beloved children to imitate him. And how in, particularly, or in particular he's talking about imitate him in the love that he has shown us that we would show that towards others. James Boyce said this, and it gives me encouragement. We have the enabling life of God within through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Consequently, just as physical genes should lead a child in the direction of a parent's chief characteristics, so should a Christian's spiritual genes lead in the direction of the moral character of God. We can imitate God because he's our father. We are his beloved children. Walk in love, it says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So we know what kind of love this is. It's not just an emotional love. It's not sentimental. It's way more than that. Walk in love. How is that love? As Christ loved us. Well, how did he love us? He gave himself up for us. He gave himself up for us as a, as a pleasing aroma to God. The, the love that Christ showed to us in his sacrifice pleased God. And so we love others with sacrificial love, not expecting anything in return. Laying ourselves down for others, starting in your immediate home and working itself out through the church family and others you know that be that kind of a loving person, the kind of love that's shown by Christ towards us. Loved people will love others. You know, uh, years ago I was a counselor at a camp and different churches were sending kids there and there was a, a kid that came that the youth pastor told me that he had a terrible, terrible home life and it was bad what he described. And he just told me that he's going to need a lot of extra patience because he'll act out a lot, especially when he gets around other people. He just has this overwhelming sense of how tough his situation is. And if he senses other people don't have as tough a situation, he, he just gets mad and doesn't know what to do with it. And he just lashes out. And I thought, oh, it won't be any trouble. I'll just buddy up with him. It'll be fine. And it didn't take long. And he was lashing out at everybody and even getting violent in certain cases that didn't call for any kind of even being upset, let alone swinging at people. And um, we sat him down after a while and just tried to ask him what was going on. And he just unloaded stuff that was worse than what they even told uh, that we knew about him. And his, 
the reception of that kind of action towards him just made him lash out. He was not feeling love whatsoever, and so he almost couldn't respond to other people in a loving way. He didn't know how to do it. Hurt people hurt others. That's the phrase, and I think it's true. But for us, even if that's true in our natural life, what we've been shown is we grip the grace that's been shown to us, the love on display through what Christ has done for us, when we bathe our minds and hearts in that truth of being his adopted sons and daughters, then we can start spreading or extending that love to others around us. I want to say to you, it's only when that happens that we can really do it. Only when that happens can we be selfless in our love. We'll always want something back when we show people grace and love if we don't recognize the root of it has to be what's been done for us by God through Christ. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That last phrase I want to spend just a moment explaining because I think it's very picturesque. We lack a little bit because we don't walk too many areas um, that there are varying fragrances. You could probably all think maybe during the holiday season, if you walked on the plaza, other places, even town center, they'll have some things that are cooking out on the sidewalk or you can smell as you go by the different restaurants or the place that makes the popcorn, uh, whatever it may be. And you can smell the fragrance of it. It just reminds you of a season. It just reminds you of something. In, in antiquity, in the first century, um, not just uh, Judaism, but other religions would practice sacrificial systems. And they would burn different offerings and they would emit different odors. And they weren't viewed as, as bad odors. They were, whether it was burning meat because it was uh, a sacrifice done in the temple, it could be barley, could be grain, there were wine offerings. There were an assortment of smells. And these smells indicated that the sacrifices had been finished that the work of raising the animal and then slaughtering it and so forth and sacrificing it. And the meat was eaten afterwards. Um, so it was satisfaction, that sense of it's done, it's finished, and it just you were reminded of that satisfaction. So in using this phrase to describe Jesus' loving sacrifice, we gather a picture of what it's like when the, the people of God practices love towards one another. Just as Jesus' sacrifice of himself was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, this is acceptable, So likewise, this is a fragrance, this smell of Christ's unity and love that happens in the church body, especially when we practice this towards each other. Here's the challenge that I always make to us as a church family. We can be right on doctrine and careful to proclaim the doctrines of grace, the doctrines of God's love, what Christ had done for us, and we should. This is what the Bible teaches. But we should press ourselves. Do we live out these doctrines? Because that is what gives footing for us to be able to describe this gospel as so life-changing. If we're really austere about just stating the legal statement about the gospel or about what the Bible says here or does there, but we're not showing grace, forgiveness, patience, love, self-sacrificing love to one another, you've got to ask yourself, do we really grasp the gospel of grace at all? So it's always a good checkpoint for the body of Christ to see how our doctrine and our life match. You've got to have both in order to be the impacting uh, agent that God would have us to be in this world that's watching more closely than we think. It was Greg Baugh who wrote an exegetical, a real technical commentary on this, but he said something simple and profound. He said, in Christ alone divine justice and unfathomable love kissed to fulfill all at once all the Old 
Testament sacrificial types and as a result provide the supreme model for the believer's own grateful self-sacrificial acts of love. Brian Chappell said it more simply. My life will never deserve God's love, but my life can reflect his love because I love him and I will live for him in what I say and think and do. This is the love that God has shown us that I think is worthy of meditation. In John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. In John, 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we don't wait for others to love us. We go love them just as God has loved us. In Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. See the, the theme here? You don't wait for someone to become lovable to go love them. Thankfully, God did not do that with us. Now, I know you can think of some examples in your life right now of someone that needs love, that you can go show that love to them, not expecting something in return. In Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. He's making a proclamation of the new person he is in Christ. This is what all of our testimony should be. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who's the Son of God? The one who loves me and gave himself for me. See, the motivation for being this kind of loving comes from the love we receive when we were not lovable. If we did that, if we didn't just wait for people to be lovable or our perception of their being lovable, imagine the revolution that could happen among us with that kind of self-sacrificial love. In John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. One last reference that uh, bolsters this common theme that Paul and the rest of Scripture teaches. It comes in Philippians, when he's describing for the Philippian believers how they might think towards one another. And he said this, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And of course, he lays himself down for us. In conclusion, just very simply, what two things do we learn from Christ's sacrifice for us? We learn grace and love. And Paul says, walk in this grace and love. Grace, that God would forgive our sins through the sacrifice of Christ. Grace is God showing us his favor despite our deserving his wrath, all because of Christ in our place. Love, love that Christ would willingly represent us in life and death even though we were sinners. That he would love us so much that he would go to the cross and be our substitute. Brothers and sisters, in our family lives and in our church and even extended beyond that, let us walk in grace and love towards one another as people who know the grace of God and have sensed and felt and experienced the love of God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we will readily sing and celebrate about your amazing grace, your, the marvelous grace of our loving Lord. And Lord Jesus, we will eagerly sing or declare to you that you are the lover of our souls. But we are not always so quick to be gracious towards the people sitting right next to us or around us. We are sadly unwilling to love each other. But you are our Father by adoption. You have not cast us off because of our shortcomings. So please give us your aid by your spirit to imitate your grace and your love. 
We thank you for your grace and for your love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by